Hi, I'm William Thomas. And I'm Christine Gonzalez-Wertz. Welcome to Empathetic Machines, where we explore the role of empathy, ethics, and experience in technology interactions large and small. In this, our debut podcast, we want to explore... Sorry, my, my phone pulled me away. In this, the debut Empathetic Machines podcast, we want to explore how we as individuals got where we are to this place, this relationship with our devices. It's a place where, in spite of the fact that we're recording, I, I was essentially compelled to respond to the call of my phone. Did I say excuse me? Was I even supposed to? Yes, this place, which is to say, completely and utterly attached. William's phone is just the tip of the iceberg with all the smart items entering our lives. Mats, speakers, thermostats, or writ large, kitchens, cars, homes, work buildings, everything, elevators. There's nothing that remains untouched. Yep, writ large, there's lots of magical capabilities coming our way. But what's really been making the news is how bad this relationship with technology has been. Uh, I suppose today, this very minute, amid the social distancing of this COVID-19 moment, our tech is providing some solace. I got to take a quick detour. Could could we call it distant socializing? I mean, that's the point, right? We're still going to be social. We'll just do it at a distance, or that's the aspiration at least. Shout out to Jamil Zaki, assistant psych professor at Stanford for this. Okay, and digression. Look, just weeks ago, we were talking about how tech costs us. It costs us sleep. It makes us lonely. It often diminishes actual human contact. And I expect after this terrible moment in history passes, we will once again be in the same place. But is it someone's fault? I mean, who, whose fault is it? Fault is such a heavy word, William. Just here we go. Uh, you know, Sirius sitting here recording as I'm recording. This is the way this happens. And my Surrey happens to be the Australian guy, so there you have it. Didn't find anything. Seriously, though, fault is such a heavy word. Is it a lack of willpower, manufacturer intention, unintended consequence? I think the more important topic will be what can be done about it. What do we want to do? What should we do? I was surprised by the amount of time I spent on a phone. (laughs) Screen time has exposed my deep, deep attachment to the news. I mean, I thought it was, um, I thought it was bad, but now even the podcasts I listen to are about the news. Tech news, political news, financial news. Well, you, you are a member of the tech cognoscenti, yeah? William, I think of myself as a digital connoisseur. It, it's a compliment, I'm sure. It's a compliment for sure. <laughs> Look, uh, more seriously, I have teen children, and I've been surprised at the pull of phone and now they're tech on their attention. It's like, it's like their lives are moving out of the real world that we share. It's a deprioritization of the present, of the here and now. That ping or that buzz, that text or snap or alert, it'll drag just about any conversation to a sudden halt, mid-sentence usually. I've tried to grok this. I recall something like this, I imagine, uh, when I was younger, when the phone rang, and, and by the phone, I mean the landline phone, the POTS, as they, as they say. There was this urgent feeling with the ring. It was like I was compelled to get it. I mean, I might have been missing something. On reflection, however, that's kind of maybe the wrong way to think about it. The caller always was asking for my time and my attention. 
in a sense, they were asking me for a favor. But to miss a call, I mean, that was really bad. Now, the plain old landline analogy misses an important point. In the case of a text or an email, an alert, I mean, these, these are asynchronic things, man. They can wait. For my kids and their set, however, the digital summons, it, it takes precedence over real live people in the room that strains relationships. And there are other concerns about this, right? Like who or what's on the other end of the digital summons? Uh, and then how does all of this constant summoning have an impact on confidence, on self-awareness, um, image? What impact does it have on the way kids interact? And then, as a parent, there's this emotional response when homework or life threatens to be an interruption to the digital stream. Um, there's more to say here, and I expect deeper exploration of interactions to be a topic of a later podcast. The point is, how did these devices get here? Let's start at an important beginning. Sure, we had phones, but everything really changed with the iPhone. Ah, yes, the iPhone. I guess a lot of things really did start at Macworld. On January 9th, 2007. More specifically, they started with Steve Jobs' keynote. The Macworld Expo was founded in 1985 as essentially the world's largest Mac user group gathering. It offered Mac enthusiasts a place to gather, to party, and to rub shoulders. When he returned to it in 1997, Steve Jobs upgraded the event keynote to something a bit more than just an Apple company update. If we can consider the product launch to be a genre, Jobs' keynotes can be considered classics of the form. Now, Macworld is something a bit of the past. Apple years ago made its last appearance, and Macworld itself ceased to exist in 2014. But I'd ask you, let's go back to 2007, however. The 45,000-strong Macworld Expo crowd filled 100,000 square feet of space. Jobs took the stage at 9 a.m. to a packed Moscone Center in San Francisco. Sporting his trademark black turtleneck and denim, he kicked the session off. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. From the very start, he has the already friendly crowd eating from the palm of his hand. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And Apple has been, well, first of all, one's very fortunate if you get to work on just one of these in your career. Apple's been very fortunate. It's been able to introduce a few of these into the world. Those products are, of course, 1984's Macintosh, and the iPod of 2001. Jobs notes that each of these caused a revolution in industry. For the Mac, it's the computer industry. For the iPod, the entire music industry. He then prepares his audience for not one, but three revolutionary product announcements that day in 2007. Of course, it's just a ruse. He's just setting them up for what comes next. Not three separate devices. This is one device. Three things, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. After comparing the new iPhone quite favorably to the state-of-the-art phones by Treo, BlackBerry, and Nokia, 
Jobs begins to get into some of the key themes of this keynote address. It's not my intention to review Jobs' entire address. You should do that on your own. I, I really do recommend it. Again, it's a classic of the product launch genre. What I do want to do is get back to shedding some light on how we today got here to our current relationships with our devices. During the presentation, Jobs says, Now, why do we need a revolutionary user interface? He puts it in context, but the context he puts it in is that of the, the product, not necessarily the user. We've been very lucky to have brought a few revolutionary user interfaces to the market in our time. First was the mouse, the second was the click wheel, and now we're going to bring multi-touch to the market. And each of these revolutionary user interfaces has made possible a revolutionary product the Mac, the iPod, and now the iPhone. So what's the revolution intended by the interface to the iPhone? Well, part of the reason it's needed is it's related pretty clearly during Jobs' keynote. It's a replacement for the old-style plastic button keyboard that sits beneath the screen. Replacing that with something that's software-driven will unleash the power and the potential of user experience, and that's important. But, but there's something uh, more fundamental going on here for our purpose. And it's summed up in some of the comments that Jobs makes throughout the speech. It works like magic. <laughs> it's casting a spell. Yeah. And then again he says, You can touch your music. You can just touch your music. It's so cool. He's right. It is so cool. There's no doubt about it. I mean, who can question that? It's just so cool. Now what's happening here with this revolutionary interface with the phone? Well, it's becoming an extension of us, a really important extension of us, as, as we'll see as we look into the future. Go ahead and turn it on. This is the size of it. It fits beautifully in the palm of your hand. Oh gosh, does it fit beautifully in our hands, huh? The phone is designed in so many ways to interface directly with our lives. It includes, for example, under the covers, three sensors an ambient light sensor, a proximity sensor, and an accelerometer, each providing input to software so that the device can reconfigure, it can behave in ways that are interfaced directly with our lives. This is fundamental to our experience of the iPhone. And what does it do? Well, it, it continues to drive greater opportunities for immersion at a deep level of intimacy with the device. It's so important for what Apple is trying to do, and it sets the stage for Really one last thing, one really important thing. A revolutionary user interface. We're gonna build on top of that with software. Now software on mobile phones is like, it's like baby software. It's not so powerful. And today, we're gonna to show you a software breakthrough. Software that's at least five years ahead of what's on any other phone. So that's it, world class. Powerful software built on top of an incredibly immersive experience platform, instrumented for great responsiveness, great interaction with the human user. Software on top of this to enable the construction of other elements, the architecting of other experiences, completely new creative options. It's a key point of the presentation. Now, that's not the end of the presentation. Jobs runs through a delightful series of demos, each building on the last. There's the call with Johnny Ives, 
and also with senior marketing executive Phil Schiller. The three of them get into a three-way call and, and then Jobs emails Schiller a picture through email. All these activities are very common to us today, but at the time they were I mean, nothing short of revolutionary. There's a great moment of humor at the end. Uh, Christine, I hope we have time for me to go cover this. It's, it's the famous call to Starbucks. Yes, I'd like to order 4,000 lattes to go, please. No, just kidding. Wrong number. Thank you. And immediately following, of course, Jobs will invite Google CEO and Yahoo CEO up on stage to talk about state-of-the-art uh, architectures and emails and communication protocols. But really, the point that we want to hone in on today is the power of this interface and its intimacy uh, magnified by the power of the software and the capability to continue to build on the interface as a platform. I think at this point it's important to note that Jobs made one other announcement in 2007. Apple Computing changed its name simply to Apple, a reflection of its ongoing focus on user experience, converged devices, our lives and our homes. This then really is what started in 2007. Since then we've moved arguably well beyond what Jobs intended, uh, what the platform envisioned. And we're moving into medical wonders, activity monitoring, yoga instruction, diabetes management, television control, front door management. I mean, the English language has had to change in response to phones and emoji culture. We, we swipe right. We don't want to be ghosted or fubbed. I don't know about you, but I don't really bother to learn my way around, even in my own hometown. My, my brain just relies on my phone. I'm always lost, sort of. When I'm in a public space, perhaps a waiting room, I mean, why should I try to have a chat with someone else? I can game or read the news or listen to an opinion. Or I mean, There's just no reason to chat with strangers in the room. I pick up my son after a tough soccer game. There's no need to chat and explore what just happened. It's, it's easier for him to watch the Premier League or the playback of another game or something else. It's, it's this immersion and avoidance of conversations that has become to characterize our life. Now, I, I exaggerate a bit for effect, but uh, can we cue comfortably numb now? That would be really great. We have no budget for the Pink Floyd. But seriously, it is a contrast to child rearing by the tech titans. Jobs, Gates, Cuban, and others have tightly prescribed screen time by the, for their children. Uh, Jobs mandated family dinners without screens. His children were not allowed to have iPads. This seems to have been a rare point of agreement between Jobs and other tech titans. Bill Gates didn't allow his kids to have phones until 14, well after their peers. Mark Cuban, YouTube executive. Um, we'll dive into this uh, specific thread more deeply in a later podcast, but what's interesting is how it all came about. We were getting ahead of ourselves there, Christine. Let's just flash forward to 2018. iPhone is much more than what was announced in 2007. It's much more than we could possibly have imagined then at all. Laurie Seagal interviews Tim Cook, the then CEO of, of Apple. She asks about a new tracking tool designed to deal with what she describes as a phone and tech addiction. Cook responds. We want people to be incredibly satisfied and empowered by our, uh, the devices that we ship, but we've never wanted people to spend a lot of time on them or all of their time on them. 
Now let's be clear. It's not my position this is spin or disingenuous. It's a highly accomplished, very talented executive, a technology leader addressing unintended consequence. Uh, but the way that it's addressed is quite revealing in the status of our relationship with technology. And we're, we're rolling out great tools to both make people aware of how much time they're spending and the apps that they're spending them in, but also how many times they pick up their phone, how many notifications they get. Later in the interview, Seagal asks Cook very directly to comment on the idea that people are worried about the impact that tech is having on them and on their children. Again, Tim Cook. I think ultimately uh, each person has to make the decision when they get their numbers as to what they would like to do. And, and I encourage everyone to look and everyone to make an informed decision and ask themselves if they're picking up their phone 10 times an hour or 20 times an hour, maybe they could do it less. Finally, Cook gets down to the notion of responsibility, personal responsibility. I don't know what the numbers are. It's different for each of us. And, uh, but, but I think the power is now shifted to the user. And that has been what Apple has always been about, is giving the power from the institution to the user. Let's just review what he said there. You guys announced a tech addiction tool. Cook said he never wanted people to spend a lot of time on their devices. Um, they never expected them to be so, so present and aware. They wanted to empower people to decide uh, facts and to make and to use them but then to cut back but but even cook himself found he was spending too much time on his phone so what has shifted power or accountability oh nice one christine i love that question let's back up a second and see how we arrived here there were times when digital was not so pervasive so much a part of everything we did when as Tim Cook indicates, the power sat with the institution. When did that change? Well, maybe we should go back a little before even Steve Jobs' 2007 address. 1996, Motorola gives us the StarTac, a device universally celebrated and loved. It's, I mean, it's considered a titan of great design. Nokia gives us the first QWERTY keyboard on the Communicator 9000. Phones, I mean, they're still considered a bit of a novelty. Yet, just as video killed the radio, radio star, according to the Buggles, the other better tech killed the flip phone. Research in motion became a dominant player, creating our next attachment. My thumbs still yearn a bit for that when I say it. When Apple launched in, in 2007, the battle was between Rim and Nokia, and no one saw the massive impact to our lives hiding in plain sight. You're right. And no one failed to see this more than the leaders, the, the managers of these companies. This is an interesting topic to discuss. And it's one with a bit of nuance. I mean, why did they miss this? And why are we, the users of the devices, why are we now accountable? In some ways, tech is its own historical force. It's trending along well beyond our control. As it goes along, it simply enacts new social change, new norms come into being, new expectations are set. Uh, tech interacts with other historical forces, changing as it encounters them, but also changing the composition and direction of these other forces. So what can we learn about products with unintended consequences? 
How does this dovetail with the rise of consumerism, American style? Technology makes us, the user, self-policing, which is difficult. Where is business accountability, ethics, and responsibility? Who is responsible for that? Who is organizing understanding? Are companies responsible for all the stuff we did not design for? What's too far? In some ways, devices are the problem and the solution. To address loneliness, do we give everyone an iPad? I know that um, I gave my mom an iPad and it's been so central in the middle of COVID-19 to her being able to reach me regularly and easily um, that I can make sure that she is not overwhelmingly shut in, that she is, uh, that she knows that she's loved and contacted and is able to talk to her kids, her grandkids. Um, but does that help? Maybe, maybe not. But how about this notion from the, the Netherlands? The Kletzkasse. Did you say the Kletzkasse? Also known as the chat checkout. While many people want to get out of the market as quickly as possible, Dutch grocery store chains are playing with checkouts where you can actually have a brief, friendly conversation. Yes, that's it, guys. A human interaction. For the elderly, the lonely, or the depressed, this notion of a checkout staffed by a friendly face, armed with a few kind words, is meaningful. It is decidedly low-tech, but utterly relevant. Apps like Calm, with millions of followers and concepts like Sleep Stories, for adults to lull us to rest. Hey, I'm a, I'm a fan, I'm a user, but I'm not sure that it's the answer. I think tech users deserve a potential impact statement before a product launch and as products grow. I think management should be accountable. Um, in the same way IBM has started what I affectionately call the Algorithmic Accountability and Transparency Campaign, easy for me to say, uh, more tech companies need to do this and they need to do it earlier. Always it's IBM with you, Christine, always. <laughs> but look, the recent move to go beyond shareholder value uh, is sort of in the same mode. We, we need to be accountable to people, even as our wonderful devices have these unintended consequences. Um, so so let, let's bring this around. The devices are magical. We've posited that Steve Jobs' keynote in 2007 is a, is a likely starting point for this. There may be others. But, but the spell cast by these devices is, is powerful. They, they extend our capabilities, but they also can have these deleterious effects on us and our lives, things they were not designed for. The people who bring us this magic in effect have tended to, to take a caveat emptor approach. And this is an ethical challenge for us to chew on a bit, or at least it lays out a theme for us to discuss. Let's plan to continue to draw this out as we delve into um, this a little more deeply. Identity, digital or otherwise, the rise of experience, attention, and the supporting design thinking discipline, if that really exists. What? If the design thinking discipline really exists? What? Yes, yes, I know it exists. Shh, don't tweet at me. Um, how do we understand the redefinition of self? Where is security? Before we draw this to a close, I'd like to 
point our listeners to a parallel set of podcasts that Empathetic Machines will be conducting with our, our partners at Next Curve. The first one is about smart home and, and smart living. Flossing toilets and sewage, light bulbs, washing machines, furnaces and climate control, vacuum cleaners, the telephone television. What does the smart home have in the pipeline to compete with all those new devices? We trust brilliant electronics manufacturers with technical innovation, um, but the smart home is about platform-generated experiences, and it's about solutions. What we really desire is smart living. How do we trust companies are going to do that? How indeed, but, but let's leave something for our future podcasts. Okay, Christine, see you then. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, William. Be sure to check out the show notes for sources and attributions and credits. Thanks to Music for Makers for our theme music. And a particular shout out now for Steve Wright, a local music producer here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, for his atmospheric music. Talk to you next time. Take care of yourself, Christine.